take up your cross, lose your life. It all sounds, well, it all sounds really hard and pretty grim. So what on earth is Jesus, the same Jesus who tells us he comes to give his life in all its fullness, talking about? Hi, and welcome to St Ninian's Church in Stonehouse. My name's Stuart, and I get to be the minister here. We're so glad that you could join us from wherever you find yourself today. Our time together this morning is led by Yvonne Hamilton. Yvonne is one of our elders and one of our local worship leaders. And our prayers and readings will be brought to us by Lisa Cameron, who's also one of our elders. So let's listen now for the word of God. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. Jesus predicts his death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Have you ever felt on such a high note one minute, only to be brought down a peg or two the next? To be praised one minute and chastised the next? Well, in today's reading, that's exactly what happened to Peter. Last week, we heard Jesus ask the disciples the question, Who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one promised, the one to come and redeem the world. Jesus was the one everyone was waiting for. And so it must have been a wonderful moment for the disciples. The disciples had spent the most time with Jesus and they were beginning to figure out who he was. Peter's answer meant that at last they got it. Jesus was a promised Messiah. Jesus' response to Peter's answer was to say that he would build his church in Peter, the rock, and he would give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? But Jesus didn't let the disciples glory in the moment for too long though, did he? As we know, after hearing today's reading, that feeling that Peter must have had after receiving such high praise from Jesus, well, it didn't last long. It seems that, in the blink of an eye, Peter has gone from being the rock, a symbol of strength and security, to a stumbling block, a source of risk and a potential injury. And what's more, Jesus has just called him Satan. Twice in as many weeks I've found myself preaching in two passages that have at first glance shocked me, mostly because of the language that Jesus uses, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that way. The first encounter Jesus had with the Canaanite woman, where he said, 
it isn't right to take from the children and throw it to the dogs. Dogs? Well, for Jews, dogs were unclean animals, and so to refer to Gentiles as dogs was a well-known term of scorn. And now, in today's passage, we hear Jesus call one of his closest friends Satan. Imagine if someone was just starting out the Christian journey and they opened the Bible at either of these passages. What sort of person would they think Jesus was? Well, not exactly the compassionate Jesus that we know. But thankfully for us, as we scratch the surface and we dig deeper into these passages, we begin to understand why Jesus uses the language that he does. And it starts to make sense to us. For Peter, though, what Jesus has just said makes no sense at all. Poor Peter. He just can't seem to get things right. One step forward and two steps back springs to mind. Jesus' question and Peter's response marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry with his disciples. Up until this point, Jesus had refrained from telling his disciples about his death and resurrection until they'd reached an important milestone, namely that their faith had grown to the extent that they could express their conviction that Jesus was the Son of God. How the disciples handled this information of Jesus' death would depend on who they believed Jesus to be. Knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, they should be able to trust him, even to the point of accepting his death and resurrection without being shaken. Unfortunately, the disciples had a hard time processing what Jesus was now telling them. Even having faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the disciples were thrown into confusion at the prediction of his death and resurrection. What did Jesus just say? Did he just say that he must go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and be killed? Well, that's not how things were supposed to happen. And so it's no wonder that the disciples are shocked at what Jesus is telling them. As I said, the disciples were beginning to get a grasp on who Jesus was, the promised Messiah. Only Peter is expecting a different kind of Messiah than the one that Jesus is. All of the disciples are, because in their minds, the Messiah is one who comes with strength and power. Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom. However, the disciples were thinking of an earthly kingdom, a dynasty. They were ready to get back to Israel being a powerful, autonomous nation again. They wanted to be free from Rome and any other foreign rulers and their pagan gods. After all, they'd been praying for this to happen for years. And so when Jesus starts talking about something completely different, when he talks about being killed, just like he did in his response to Jesus asking, who do you say I am? It's Peter that speaks out. Peter takes Jesus aside and tells him that this could never happen to him. Peter tells Jesus that there is no way that this could be the case. Peter was having none of it. I love the disciple Peter because he's so human and the one who said what others might have wanted to say but just didn't dare. He was the one who walked on the water to Jesus, the one who denied him, the disciple who said, but we've given up everything, what about us? And now here he berates Jesus because he couldn't believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One, must suffer and die. He wanted Jesus to be the leader to save them from the Roman rule, just as many thought that he would. The bold Peter is now telling Jesus how things are going to work. The student telling the teacher how things are going to be. 
As shocked as Peter was at what Jesus was saying, he was out of place. You might question the teacher for clarification, but you would never tell the teacher what they were that they were wrong. Noble as Peter's intentions were, he was out of line telling Jesus that this was not going to happen to him. This didn't fit the plans. Peter didn't want his friend, his teacher, the Messiah, to have to suffer. If Jesus was going to die, then how in the world was he going to become a king? Jesus didn't know what he was talking about and Peter was going to set him straight. This wasn't going to happen, not in Peter's watch. Now we shake our heads and we say, Peter, come on, you should know better than this. Where do you get off telling Jesus how things are going to be? Peter, you were doing so well. Jesus just gave you the keys to the kingdom. So how could you go and mess things up? Nor Peter or the other disciples understood the kingdom that Jesus was coming to set up. Jesus came to establish his kingdom in heaven. Jesus knows what's best. Jesus knows how things are going to work. That's why Jesus' response to Peter sounds harsh to say the least. Get behind me, Satan. Didn't Jesus already face a similar situation? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Remember the last temptation that Satan threw at Jesus? In verse 8 it says, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Did Satan really have the power to give Jesus all these things? Well, not really, but he was trying to tempt Jesus into taking the world as a political ruler. Take it, Jesus, right now. Jesus' kingdom was bigger, as he was sent to save all mankind from their sin. He was there to follow his father's plan, and if Satan could not derail him from doing so, then neither was Peter going to. Disciples were supposed to follow behind their teacher, and Jesus was putting Peter back into his place. Jesus was chastising Peter. Now knowing what we know today, I think we can understand the first part of this passage easily enough. The disciples thought that they were going to get in on the ground floor of this kingdom. They were the followers of Jesus, and if he was going to overthrow the government, then they would be called upon to be his advisor and to help him rule. This was how things were done in that day. And so really, you can't blame the disciples for thinking anything to the contrary. It's the second part of this passage that starts to get a bit trickier for us. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The cross of Christ is central to our Christian faith. The cross shows us the love of God. The cross shows us how much he cared for us in sending Jesus to die for us so that we can have that special relationship with him, so that we can be forgiven and live each day afresh and anew. Sometimes we can forget the importance of the cross for our Christian faith. We see around as many depictions of the cross, some with Jesus still there, some empty, showing the good news that Jesus has risen. I've got lots of crosses in my study. You can probably see them behind me. All different sizes, some made of wood, others made of metal. The cross is used much in jewellery too by Christians and non-Christians alike. 
and I wear a necklace with a cross on it. I've even got two tattoos with crosses on them. And like many others, I carry a small poem around with me in my pocket. The cross in my pocket. In today's Gospel reading, Jesus speaks about his forthcoming suffering and death and then goes on to speak of the disciples carrying their cross. I wonder what it means to each one of us to follow Jesus' invitation to carry the cross. It does sound a bit daunting. Now some think it means that God has given us a trial to bear throughout our lives, a bit like Paul's thorn in the flesh that he begs God to take away from him. To some it means that God has given us challenges to test us, to see how we deal with the difficulty in front of us. To some it means that God uses the trials that we go through to see how we bear up under the strain. But none of these sound like the loving God that you or I know. How many times when you seem to be going through difficulties, one after another, someone says to you, God only gives you what he knows you can handle. Well, I don't believe that. Nor should the woman trapped in an abusive relationship. Or the child who's been relentlessly bullied. Or the young adult struggling with her sexuality. Or the man who's lost his job and is struggling to keep a roof over his family's head and to put food on the table. God doesn't inflict us with pain and suffering because he knows we can handle it. The reality is that in life we do have pain and we do have suffering. The crosses we carry are the difficult and painful situations that we go through in our lives an unsettling health diagnosis, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the breakdown of a relationship. Each of us will have different crosses to carry. I also think that the cross that we are asked to take up by Jesus changes over our lifetime. You see, the cross that you're asked to take up as a young person is very different from the cross you're asked to take up as an older person. As a young person, your cross might mean standing up for what you believe, even when it's unpopular. It might mean saying no to friends, even when it threatens your friendship. When you get married, there are new crosses, including those times when you're called to put your partner's needs and interests before your own. And if you're blessed to have children, there are new crosses as well, including caring for your child so much that it hurts, it hurts you when they're hurt. As you continue to age, new crosses present themselves, giving up independence, no longer being able to drive or live on your own, learning to humble yourself and rely on others for help. Again, these crosses are there. They're part of meaning what it's like to be following Jesus. You have to accept the cross, trust Jesus and follow him. So when Jesus asks us to take up our crosses, it's not because he gives us pain and suffering before because he knows that we'll have it, but he's there in it with us, shining a light in the midst of the darkness. Through the cross of Christ, we can bear our own pain, our own crosses, knowing that Jesus understands and is with us in it. And sometimes through the pain, there's resurrection and new life. Sometimes we see glimpses of Christ's light. Sometimes the pain is with us throughout our lives, but Christ is there with us in it, understanding and helping us through giving us the strength that we need. In his book, The Seven Story Mountain, Thomas Merton, who was a theologian and Trappist monk, 
describes our souls as potentially lucid crystals left in the darkness. But when the light shines in these crystals, when God's love shines in our souls, we become transformed. We caught a glimpse of that during the pandemic, didn't we? People's natures were transformed, their capacity for love transfigured. And as we each carry our own crosses, God transforms our souls, our spirits, to give us more capacity for love and kindness. And when we go through pain, we can identify so much more with people, others in pain. When we're in pain, we see how kind and loving others can be. And as we carry our crosses, as we walk with Jesus through the pain, God transforms us and gives us the strength to get through. We also learn much about God through our suffering. When things are going well, we can often leave God behind saying, oh, thanks very much, but everything's going fine. We don't need you right now. Often, only when we suffer do we call out to God, do we realise that we actually desperately need him and a strength that's not sufficient. That's when we know we can't rely on ourselves alone and we know our need of him. And as we call out to him, we receive the strength that we need and often we receive the peace that passes all understanding. Our second reading from Paul's letter to the Romans offers us some specific suggestions and what it might mean to take up our cross. Here are three of them. First in verse 12, Paul writes, Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Can you find a way to rejoice in hope despite your suffering? Can you find joy in the hope of the gospel and in the promise of eternal life? Can you be patient in your suffering? Can you persevere in your prayers? The second example from this reading is the very next verse, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Maybe your life is going very smoothly right now, but you have a nagging sense that you've been called to do more. Maybe that means giving more to the needs of the world, even if it hampers your lifestyle. There's no end to the needs in our world these days, and there are many important and worthy causes. So that might be your cross right now, and contribute to the needs of the saints. The third example, verse 18. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Could this be your cross? What might it mean for you to decide to live peaceably with all right now? And so far as it depends on you. Can you disagree with someone and still live peaceably with them? Well, I certainly think so. So these are just a few examples of what your cross might look like right now. There are obviously many more. The truth is that I don't know what cross you're being asked to bear right now. But I do know that there is a cross that is yours and no one else's. There was a cross that was only for Jesus. There was a cross that was only for his first disciples. There is a cross that's only for me and there's a cross that's only for you. And if we want to follow Jesus, we must take it up. But as we do this and choose to take up our cross, let us remember the third and final aspect of what Jesus is teaching us today. About what it means to follow him. That we deny ourselves and take up our cross in order to follow him. And that means that when we do this, Jesus himself will be with us He will be leading us and he will help us do what he asks. 
With Jesus leading us, we can deny ourselves and take up our cross. Without Jesus, it would be far too difficult. But he doesn't ask us to do this alone. He invites us to follow him, which means to be with him. It means losing one life, but it means finding another. It means losing the life that leads to despair and emptiness, but it means finding the life that leads to hope and meaning. And the only way to find this life is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. So let's ask our loving God, our loving Heavenly Father, to continue enabling us to carry whatever each of us is going through and ask him to transform us and to shine his light in us so that we can be transformed. We can be a transformed, loving people to walk with others as they carry theirs. Here I stand on holy ground But by your grace I live My darkest sin I know that you forgive It's your grace and grace alone That keeps me on my feet By your grace and grace alone I'm alive All I have been All I will be By your grace alone Loving kindness Lavished on me I'm completely Covered by your grace alone Jesus breathe Over me Lead me once again Perfect my wayward steps, so I am not condemned. It's your grace and grace alone that keeps me on my feet. By your grace and grace alone, I'm alive. Your life is stronger 
Living God, we view you as Christians through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who experienced more and achieved more in his tragically short lifetime than most of us will if we live to be a hundred. If it is true that you were present in him in a uniquely powerful way, his thinking completely in tune with yours, his life imbued with your spirit, then we can look at him and see you in a new and different way. Not separate from human brokenness and suffering, but one with us in our loss and grieving, as well as in our wonderment and joy. We pray today for any today who are going through the long, slow journey of loss and grief and recovery. And that means all of us in one way or another. The announcement of bad news. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. We pray for those who have received recently the kind of news that all of us dread. News of serious illness or redundancy or the loss of a loved one. Be with them on the road they must travel from here on in. And for those who have had to break bad news to others, may they receive the care and support that they need. This is the immediate instinctive denial. Never, Lord, this must not happen to you. Sometimes, O oh God, it is just too much to bear. We pray for those who have been assaulted with loss on a scale that no one should have to face or whose back has finally broken under one last tiny straw. May there be ears to listen, arms to hold, hearts to understand until they are ready to face their truth and take the first small step forward, even if that leads to the anger, the looking for someone to blame. Get behind me, Satan. Forgive us if we have lashed out in anger 
at someone who did nothing to deserve it. Because they were voicing our own secret thoughts, or just because they were close by. Grant us compassion and broad shoulders if someone needs to vent their rage on us. There is the bargaining, the doing of deals, the desperate search for hope. If you are willing to lose your life, you will find it. May we move quickly from false, futile deals with the universe to this real, honest deal with you. Help us to let go of whatever it is we are most fearful of losing. Then no one can take it from us. Help us as quickly as we can, as slowly as we need, to reach, to reach acceptance of a new and different future. The Son of Man will come in his glory and you will see him. God, grant hope to all who are in despair or someone to hold a candle of hope on their behalf until it, its light reaches through to warn and encourage them. God who knows from the inside what it is to be human, with all the joy and sorrow that entails, bless us and all for whom our prayers are offered. Hear us as we pray the words your Son Jesus Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. We go from this time together with God's blessing. God who is known to us as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God who is with us now and always. Amen.